From the LA Times Studios, this is Asian Enough. Every week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. Although this episode will be a little different. I'm Jen Yamato. And I'm Frank Sean. We're in the middle of a coronavirus epidemic, and this is our special quarantine episode. Got a bit of a location change. We're not coming to you from El Segundo, as we were earlier this week when we talked to John Cho and Lulu Wong. I'm actually recording this in my closet that I use as an office space, or my clawfice, as I like to call it. Jen, are you in your closet too? I am indeed in my closet looking at all of my shoes. And that's because due to COVID-19, you and I are heeding health warnings and maintaining social distance. That means that we're podcasting while staying at home, as well as washing our hands frequently and taking precautions that hopefully everyone out there is also taking too. So please join us in conversation here together in spirit, but safely apart, because this is an important episode. Yeah, when we set out to make this podcast, a global pandemic wasn't in the cards. But COVID-19 affects Asian Americans in a very specific way. And we thought it was important to talk about it. So we asked our colleague, Samia Karlamangla, who has been covering COVID-19 for the LA Times, to join us today and share her expertise. We will discuss how the virus is affecting the Asian American community and impacting Asian-owned small businesses, as well as increasing reports of anti-Asian discrimination that we've been seeing across America since this virus hit. We'll talk about how to discuss the outbreak with older family members who may not always be properly screening the barrage of information out there about COVID-19. And we'll also get Salmia's tips on how you can stay healthy and safe during this stressful time. All right, let's do it. Okay, so we're all in closets. What's your closet like, Salmia? <laughs> uh, honestly, it's a great closet. It's the best part of my apartment. Uh, it's a walk-in, which is crazy in a one-bedroom. But, you know, there I got books. I got, oh yeah, I have an extra shelf where I have a bunch of books. I have my clothes. You have a shelf in your closet? Wow. Yeah, so it's like a full-on walk-in that has, it's like, you know, it's got four walls. Well, one of the walls is a door. But then, yeah, it has like a shelf. Um, that goes along all three walls where I've stacked books. Living large in Town. I know. In the closet. <laughs> I don't know, you guys. Like, your closets are really giving me some closet envy as I sit here in a makeshift podcast studio surrounded by shoes that I haven't worn in a long time and, like, sitting on piles of clothes. I need to do some work this weekend. It's good. I like it in here, actually. Yeah. So, Samia, first of all, what is the biggest concern that you're seeing with this virus? Yeah. I mean, right now we're still really in the early phases because we don't really know where the clusters of cases are due to the lack of testing. So on a day to day basis, I'm just kind of paying attention to where those cases are popping up. And I mean, even if you know we never really get the testing off the ground, we will eventually see those people flooding into hospitals. That's actually how we started paying attention in the U.S. in the first place. We had a death in Seattle. So I'm just kind of watching where that's happening, because once a community starts becoming overwhelmed, then it's kind of a snowball effect where you run out of ICU beds and then more people are getting sick and people can't get treatment because there are no beds. And I feel like I'm just standing there bracing myself for this wave that's probably coming. 
Yeah, I think it's changing so fast that it's hard to know what to think. So in a strange way, it's actually comforting to have you on this bonus episode of our podcast because you are one of the voices that I'm following and reading at the LA Times constantly for updates. Yeah, I, I, I pretty much start my mornings with uh, reading Samia's Twitter feed. Oh, thanks, guys. Even though it's not comforting very often. <laughs> yeah, that's really not the feedback I've been getting. <laughs> so what kinds of things are you paying attention to? What should we be preparing for in the next few weeks? Yeah, so I think it became clear to us that the biggest problem is what happened in Italy and what we're seeing happening in Italy right now. So the testing was a really big issue uh, because it prevented us from quickly figuring out where the cases were and quarantining people and sort of trying to contain the outbreak that way. Now we're using this very blunt instrument, which is just sending everyone home. Um, But the bigger issue is that in the next couple of weeks, we could have hospitals really, really overwhelmed with patients who are really sick. So the mortality rate from this disease is it sounds not really high, although it is much higher than the flu. But the real issue is that it sends so many people to the hospital. Like I've seen figures as high as 50 percent in some you know, regions of Italy where people who get sick have to be hospital. That percentage of people who get sick have to be hospitalized. And so even if we have like five percent of people falling sick, getting hospitalized, we need millions of ICU beds in California. And we only have about, I think, 7000. And so what we're all the stuff we're doing right now is to prevent all of those people from getting sick at the same time so that we can slow the sort of trickle of patients into the ER. But that's a really hard thing to accomplish because 7,000 is not a lot. And the patients who get sick have been in the ICU for like in other countries for three or four weeks. So they're not like clearing those beds quickly. Um, And so that's like the giant thing. That's the wave that I think that people are starting to see kind of like coming towards us. And what are the demographics of the people who do have to be hospitalized? Do we know anything about that? Yeah, so it's... The risk of getting severe illness from this disease basically goes up with every decade and it is worse for people who have other lung problems and it seems to be other health problems in general. So even things like diabetes and cancer, uh, they just get hit a little bit harder. But when you look at the mortality, it is really it's, you know, a huge portion of it is people over 70, over 80. But if you're just looking at people who get sick, it's much broader. Like you there are reports of you know people in there. 20s, 30s, 40s in the hospital, you know, who need a machine to help them breathe because they can't breathe on their own. And the good thing is those people seem to recover more often, but they still need really intensive treatment. And if it comes to a place where we don't have enough treatment for everyone, like even those people could be in danger. Right. So actually, let's let's go through the basics of if I show symptoms, what should I do next? Yeah. um, So the like hallmarks of COVID-19 and the reason People emphasize these is because a lot of symptoms sound like the flu. COVID-19 symptoms are a cough and a fever. And I've seen numbers that said that like 90 percent of people who become symptomatic have a fever, like a high fever really early on. So that's a pretty clear indication. So, I mean, if you're feeling really anxious about it, like take your temperature in the morning. That's what they were doing for the people who were forced to quarantine at all those different Air Force bases who were coming in from China a couple of months ago. So take your temperature. If you're really worried about it, call your doctor's office. They'll tell you what to do. If I mean, if you like, you know, can't breathe and it's an emergency, then go to the emergency room. I heard some doctors say, like, go to the emergency room for the same reasons you would normally go to the emergency room. Like if you think you're so sick, you might die if you don't go. But usually most people should be able to manage it on their own. Sometimes I feel anxious about it and then I just start taking my temperature and 
I'm reminded that my temperature for some reason runs like 95 degrees. So I'm like, oh, all right, don't have a fever. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, how do you how are you handling this as a health reporter out there in the middle of this coverage every day? How do you manage your anxiety? Because that's another thing that I think a lot of people everywhere are dealing with. Yeah, I for the past. I, I must be since I became a health reporter, but I don't know if it's necessarily related. I've like had some health related anxiety where like times that I report on something for a long time, like some sort of illness, I think that I have it for a little bit. Like I just become convinced that I'm developing it, which I've heard is something that happens to doctors in med school. But as they learn more like about more diseases and sort of the rate of disease, they realize they don't have anything. But I don't get that. I don't have that luxury. I just like jump from one disease to the next. Um, and I never learned the actual, you know, the oh, sort of man. numbers that doctors learn to keep them grounded. Actually, the weirdest part for me was two or three weeks ago before everyone else was freaking out. Like I stopped going to bars. I canceled a trip that I had scheduled for last weekend. I canceled my flight. Um, and I remember my friends, I seemed very weird. I like couldn't, I felt so anxious because I knew what was coming and I couldn't really articulate it to anyone without sounding like a weird conspiracy theorist. So my anxiety levels were really high about two weeks ago because I felt wow, yeah. isolated by my anxiety. Now it's great because everyone's on the same page as me. Everyone's washing their hands, like lathering themselves in <laughs> hand sanitizer. I'm all here for it. How long do you think we could all be under somewhat of an economic lockdown or quarantine? You know, how, how long do you think, you know, is it useful to kind of stay in this state of things? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel I sort of feel anxious when I hear those predictions, too, about how because the like I was saying, the ideal is that we slow down the rate of infection so that fewer people are showing up at the hospital at once. But that means that we're stretching out how long this outbreak is going to take um, and therefore how long we might have to be on lockdown. So in China in Wuhan, where the virus was first detected, they actually just on Wednesday reported the first day of zero new cases. And they got off lockdown, I think, a week ago. So they were on lockdown for maybe two months or a little bit shy of two months. That said, they did a much more extreme version of it that we're not doing. So maybe we won't have the same benefits. But it does seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, wow. That's so comforting to hear. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> um, for listeners, note that this information is current as of March 19th, and the story changes a lot from day to day. Hopefully the light of the tunnel will still exist by the time you're listening to this. <laughs> so on to this next topic, uh, this is a big question a lot of people are wrestling with, not just within the Asian American community. You know, how do you get your older relatives to take the disease seriously? You know, because specifically for Asian Americans, a lot of us are getting information in English while our parents are getting information in a different language. And there are thousands of different languages within the Asian diaspora, which means like whole other different sets of misinformation and rumors. So have you had success talking about with this with your parents, Samia? I mean, I'm in a weird position because my parents are doctors. <laughs> so I don't have to convince my parents that it's a <laughs> <course>. big deal. <laughs> um, uh -huh. I have friends who've texted me saying, like, this is what my mom's saying. How do I convince her it's a big deal? My mom's like 68 or 65. And I do think that that's been a really big issue. It's This disease is unusual, and it's partially because we don't know that much about it. But for the most part, what people are saying is it's your age 
that puts you at risk. And you're more at risk if you're in your 50s than your 40s and your 60s than your 50s. And that, I think, for people who are, you know, in their early 60s and feel healthy and then are being told by the government that they're high risk for this disease, I think it's just hard for them to swallow. I like my dad is 60 and right. I was talking to him about it in that way. And like, he, you know, he's doing all the right things, but he also was like, I don't know if I'm really in a high risk group. Like he just doesn't believe it or he doesn't want to believe it. It's so hard sometimes. And it even was before this pandemic, of course, to get elders and seniors to take these kinds of things seriously, which I actually understand because it's it can be hard for any of us to admit that we are vulnerable or might need to take precautions that conflict with how we'd like to live our lives, especially when reliable information or guidance feels so fragmented. Yeah, I mean, there's there's almost too much information out there. You can kind of go and, and select the information that, that you want to believe. Right. And you know, talking with my mom and my dad has been kind of frustrating sometimes because if I'm taking care of their health and I'm telling them what to do, that's just a position they're kind of uncomfortable with. And it got very quick to like, oh, my dad's like, well, I'm I'm healthier than you. And I'm like, well, sure. But uh, it was tough to kind of like tell them what to do. And and so I tried to express things and just in terms of my worry for them, you know, like I'm worried for you, not like you're doing it wrong, you know? And so that, that seemed to help. Like my mom keeps sending me like more alarming hoaxes every day. And I'm just like, mom, it's not true. Mom, it's not true. Like I heard that on Monday, they were supposed to drop disinfectant from the sky. There are like diagrams showing that if you like gargle with vinegar and salt water, you can stop the disease because it, you know, attacks your throat first, you know. In the San Gabriel Valley, I heard about a uh, special spray that you can spray on face masks to somehow make them safer against disease. And there was a specific hoax uh, about COVID-19 being reported at San Gabriel uh, Hawaii supermarket, this um, Southeast Asian, Chinese, and and Vietnamese, Pan-Asian supermarket that, you know, does sell some exotic meats. That room was very specific. It said someone got sick and was put up at this hotel and they had to deal with that rumor over there for a while. So it's it's just kind of like a wild, wild west of information out there right now. And Frank, where like where's your mom getting these hoaxes that she's sending to you? Oh, WeChat. <laughs> WeChat, Line. There's a network of Asian ladies who, who, who pass around this information. You know, H- have you guys seen hoaxes from your family? Well, Samia's parents are doctors. <laughs> yes. But my exten- I mean, my extended family is in India. And after the 2016 election, I remember thinking, like, I don't have any family that believe fake news. And then I went to India and all of my family believes all sorts of things that aren't real. Um, so I don't actually I haven't checked in with them about this in particular. I like my grandpa, though, is my grandpa's an impressive guy. He's on Twitter. He's on Facebook. He's like on everything. He's like 85. Wow. I'm sure he believes all sorts of weird stuff about this disease. But I think that in general, it's like the real data is so scary that it's almost easier to believe that, you know, it's some hoax that and so therefore it can magically disappear or, you know, there's some nefarious thing behind it instead of just like nature is doing this to us. My parents are in a shelter in place area. And so it took many nights of being on the phone with them a lot more than I am usually and being very firm about no, you have to stay inside. That means you don't go anywhere. And they would be like, oh, we don't go anywhere anyway. But we go to Costco. We go to the gas station. We go to the store for food. We go to run errands and stuff. And I'm like, you go out all the time, even if it doesn't seem like it in retirement. And my parents particularly love Costco of all places. And like 
Costco is one of their favorite places, has been ever since, like for, for decades. So to convince my mom to stop going to Costco and have somebody else, you know, pick up supplies or groceries or, or needs or, 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 you know, prescription, whatever, for them took days. Hi, Mom, if you're listening to this. Thank you for staying home, Mom. <laughs> I'm hearing this stuff from like, you know, seniors in Chinatown, too, and, and in little Tokyo and, and in Asian neighborhoods, you know, something people don't really know about Asian neighborhoods around L.A. is that they have these large kind of stationary senior populations that can't really function anywhere else. And so the enclave really exists as this like shelter for them. And so a lot of them, you know, have really got like really intense walking routines. They take the bus everywhere. They're autonomous and they kind of really define themselves a lot in you know, what they can do at their age and take a lot of pride in their health. Trying to get them to give that up, you know, is has been been pretty difficult. I've been arguing with a couple of seniors myself this week about about staying home because they're the most in danger. And and another thing I keep running into is this idea that immigrants think the U.S. has got this crisis handled. You know, they sacrificed a lot to come to this country. They they trust this country to to handle something like this and to ring the alarm bells when they need to. And, and I guess like what we have to tell them is right now you, you can't really, you know, the, the federal response has has really hurt the sort of local responses and and everyone needs to kind of act to protect each other. Well, that brings us to another discussion that we really wanted to have, which is about COVID-19 and racism. Right. We have the president of the United States calling it the, quote, Chinese virus. And we have others pushing back on the use of that terminology and debating its very real effects on the perceptions of Asians and Asian Americans right now. Uh, We're also hearing more and more first person reports of anti-Asian discrimination, harassment, even violence in places like London, New York and right here in Los Angeles. So have you guys experienced anything like that? Or how are you feeling about it right now in those terms? Yeah, I mean, this has been happening for months, I feel like. It's similar to the hoax thing. It's people want to believe something that isn't what's real. And in this case, they want to believe that the virus is, you know, only infecting a certain population of people or they can, you know, put blame on it when they feel scared about, you know, that's what people want to do. They feel scared about something. They want to blame someone else. And this happens all the time. Like they every time there's a new disease, if there's a way to sort of say like, oh, it's only affecting that population, people will do it. With HIV, they did the same thing. Like they just said, oh, that's affecting gay people in that case. And I would argue in this case too hinders the response, because if we're saying that it can't affect everyone, then we don't really have to respond to it like it's a threat for us. It's a threat, you know, for this disease. It was a threat in China. I think, I mean, it's sort of like a tale as old as time. It's just, this is just how people respond to things. And the problem with this is that it's been going on for so long and having these very real, like, economic impacts and obviously social impacts. Yeah, I mean, it's such a weird time to be Asian American right now. I don't know about y'all, but... For me, Asian American has never felt more like a skin color than it does right now. I haven't had anything like overtly racist happen to me, but I was at the taco stand the other day, walked up, heard some laughing comments about like Chino and international customers. And and then when I reached to touch the salsa cups, the taquera, she reached over to try to serve the salsa to me, but I insisted on touching them myself. It really struck me how scared she was. You know, people are refusing to be seen by my mom at her hospital job because my mom wears a face mask and they don't feel comfortable with her care. Like I hear more sort of like widespread street level 
incidents of racism against Asian Americans than than like I've ever heard before. And I, I think it's forcing this like awareness that like, hey, you know, Asian Americans, we're, we're not white. We're the targets of racism. We're being targeted with it right now. You know, I was talking with this dad whose son. So they were like trash talking each other in basketball. And uh, his son is in the fourth grade. The The bully was like, you have the coronavirus. And the son said, you know, fuck you, you know, a curse word. And his son, who's, who's, who's an, a Chinese kid, got way more punishment than the kid who said the racist thing, you know, way more punishment for a curse word. This dad is like, he's never had to talk to his son about race before. And I don't know, it's just this like time where we're kind of confronting race more directly than before. And there are some statistics I wanted to share too. Over at uh, San Francisco State University, they've been tracking racist incidents in the news. And, you know, in a period over the last rough month, uh, coronavirus discrimination news increased by 50% from 93 articles in week one to 140 stories in week four. 471 total cases of xenophobia or discrimination against Asians. That's 16 cases per day and 10 new cases per day. And so this is a report by Russell Jung, Sarah Gowing, and Kara Takasaki at the Asian American Studies Department of San Francisco State University. And it was prepared on the behalf of Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council and the group Chinese for Affirmative Action. And I just want to mention that these two groups are also launching an AAPI hate crimes tracker this week, and they're encouraging Asian Americans to report racist incidents with the hashtag StopAAPIHate. You can also go to their website to report something, www.AsianPacificPolicyAndPlanningCouncil.org slash stop-aapi-hate. But uh, it, does, it does kind of give a sense of, of how, how this, is, this is really on the rise right now. It's similar to how I'm seeing people taking COVID-19 seriously, but it doesn't really sink in until, until they know somebody. Or they're like closer in terms of degrees of separation to somebody who directly has it. And I think the same case is true for instances of discrimination right now. There's a friend of this podcast named Paula Marta who has her own fantastic podcast called Long Distance about the Filipino diaspora. And she shared on social media an instance that happened to her very recently in the L.A. area. It's things like that you're seeing more and more being shared on social media and amplified around the Asian and Asian American community to to increase awareness that, yes, these these instances are real and we need to pay attention to them, hopefully, because we need more more people to understand why this is a problem and why this is a concern. Like it's been scary to see that happen increasingly to people that I am closer to when that when that comes closer to home then it becomes more real and I become a little bit more aware of when I go out for like a walk from a a safe social distance even around my own neighborhood like in the last few days I've been just more aware increasingly aware intensely aware that I have an Asian face and uh, I don't know what anybody who's like I cross paths with how they're going to react in that way it's increased my level of self-awareness in a really kind of like an alarming way, you know? I was wondering, Samia, like, have you felt that way, like, at all? Like, have you, when you, when you walk around, you know, do you think, I mean, because you're South Asian, like, do you, do you think people are afraid of, of South Asians having the disease too? 
No, I actually I was thinking about that as you guys were saying it. Like this is making it more real for me too. I mean, yeah, I'm Indian and I look Indian and that seems to be protection in this. People don't associate me with the disease as far as I can tell. In this crisis, I think the South Asian stereotype that applies to me is that they, people think I'm probably a doctor. <laughs> so that <laughs> a good thing. Um no, it's really interesting though hearing right. that. I feel like this is you can probably argue this, but like the idea that as an Asian American, you like have more, I don't know if inclusion or passing privilege. Um, and then it's so but it's so clearly conditional because as soon as mm-hmm. you become threatening or something or as soon as people change their minds about it, you're suddenly an outsider and you feel like an outsider. And the times that you didn't feel like, you know, maybe that wasn't real. Yeah, I'm in this little bubble being an Indian person. You know, Trump associating the virus with Chinese people and Chinese identity. It's this political decision, right, to try to deflect blame. But it has all of these long-running, long-term and and widespread effects on Asian Americans that I just don't think he cares about. The WHO, you know, in 2015 said we're supposed to stop associating virus with national origin. But still, somehow we're doing it. And I'm just wondering, like, why? Do you have any ideas to, to why viruses are named for countries and people and areas? Yeah, I mean, I think because it's easy. But like you said, the World Health Organization has been going to great lengths to stop doing that. So they named the 2015 coronavirus. It's called MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Understandably, people didn't like that. And so the discussion around this, first we were calling it the novel coronavirus, which is not really a name. So then they came up with a name and they specifically purposely did not choose a name that had China or Wuhan. And yet Trump repeatedly refers to it. Wasn't it just yesterday that or this week that he referred to it as the Chinese virus? I mean, I think it's just this othering. It's in this weird space because what he's trying to say is that or what he should be trying to say is that it's a virus that originated in China. But what it sounds like the way he actually says Chinese virus, it sounds like he's saying it's a virus that afflicts Chinese people. Yeah, it's just that you can say that this isn't our problem. It's someone else's problem. They brought it here. I mean, you see it in his response, too. He didn't you know, ramp up testing so that we could test the people here who already have it. He instead closed the borders to people from other countries, like people from China, then people from Italy. And he was quick to do that. And that's not the first time that he's instated a travel ban. So it like really, it really fits with this idea. Like the problem isn't here. So people are importing the problem here. And so we're going to just say that it's, you know, the Chinese virus. Okay, well, let's follow that thread down a slightly different path. And talk about, Frank, how do you think that Asian enclaves and neighborhoods around America, but like we can look at Los Angeles even as as a really great case study. How do you think those those cultural hubs, these enclaves will be impacted by everything that we've talked about so far? Because right now, most of the U.S. is seeing such a, a grave business impact right now. Asian centric restaurants in L.A. at least have been seeing that business impact for weeks, if not a month. It's been going for even longer here in in the San Gabriel Valley, for example. So what impact are you, you know, forecasting, do you think? Well, you know, as Salmi mentioned, as you mentioned, like everyone is suffering right now. The whole service industry is suffering. The longest and most lasting impacts seem to be, you know, there and how those economic disruptions are going to reverberate. 
But Asian neighborhoods and Asian restaurants, as you mentioned, have been suffering for even longer, almost as soon as the virus was something that people were scared of. And that's been going on since maybe February. You know, when I talk to folks in in Asian ethnic enclaves in, in Los Angeles, Little Tokyo, Thai Town, Little Saigon, Sawtelle, Koreatown, Little Bangladesh, Cambodia Town, Historic Filipino Town, there are people in these neighborhoods have been seeing the slowdown that you're seeing now for, for months. So these temporary shutdowns are already reshaping neighborhoods that were already kind of targeted in battling gentrification. In Chinatown, Golden Dragon is considering closing, which is one of the last dim sum places. Ocean Seafood is also closed and struggling. And if those places go, we could have a, you know, a Chinatown without dim sum, for example. So aside from like the loss of the history and the heritage of these neighborhoods, there's also just sort of large senior populations in these neighborhoods that rely on the sort of languages spoken there to get their medical care and to get services in, in their language. They don't have other places to live, really, where they could live autonomously like that. And they don't necessarily have families that they could live with. Some of these seniors don't have any other place that they really could function. And so there are a lot of community groups like Little Tokyo Service Center, Koreatown Service Center, Chinatown Service Center that you can go and volunteer for. Because if you kind of look at Asian neighborhoods, at ethnic neighborhoods in L.A., they all really need our help right now. Certain businesses are still doing takeout. Certain businesses are offering certificates. There are a lot of different ways to kind of support your Asian ethnic communities right now. You know, I encourage you guys all to kind of look into that. These neighborhoods have only ever really survived by a safety net made of human beings. They're not paying market rate rent there. You know, they're having a landlord that's renting to this business because he finds it valuable at a much lower rate. You know, he's declining to earn income. These neighborhoods have always been kind of self-reliant economically in that way. And thus, they're in very sort of delicate balance, you know, because they're so much more vulnerable. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really scared, I guess, uh, for, for the future of these neighborhoods. Yeah. I was looking back in my own, like, the last few weeks history, and I remember a time that now seems so long ago before the, these, the restaurants in L.A. closed, for good reason, I would add. When we were first starting to see the business impact specifically on Asian restaurants and in the SGV. I did go. It felt very safe to me still. And I went out there to support simply by like having lunch. And I looked back to see when that was because it feels like a lifetime ago and it was only two weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, closed signs are turning to four lease signs, you know, in the San Gabriel Valley. People are already kind of reaching their limit. So, yeah, on the other side of this, these neighborhoods are going to look really different. There was a government official who was saying, you know, we're going to close these restaurants and it'll be tough. And when they reopen one day, the landscape might not look the same way that it did before, as in businesses will permanently close. I think what was left out of that discussion was that, like you said, Frank, the businesses that were already suffering in the weeks before the shutdown are the ones that are going to be most likely to close. Their economic impacts will be much, much bigger than everyone else's. Right. And then what happens to the cultural hubs of the future? What are those going to look like when these businesses close down? It's it's kind of really sad to think about at this point. You know, Asian neighborhoods in L.A., like a lot of the Asian student groups at UCLA and, and CSUN and, and, and USC, like 
they go to those neighborhoods to learn about themselves. You know, they uh, they do like field trips and then you know experience racial awakenings. And there's sort of vital places that we don't we don't pay enough attention to. And I was just like shocked that this had that impact. You know, like I thought people were smarter. Like I didn't think that people would see, oh, it's a Chinese virus. That means I should avoid Chinese food and any other kind of Asian thing and culture. You know, like, why does that happen? I mean, I guess the answer is racism, but I was disappointed, you know, like, what? It's the fear looking for a target again, like you said. But yeah, I live in Thai town. This is partially because I'm so busy nowadays reporting, but also because it's great and convenient. I've been getting like takeout and delivery from all of the Thai places in my neighborhood, like almost every day. Like, and then I feel I can make myself feel good about it because I feel like I'm supporting local business, but really I'm just looking for a good dinner. Sammy, you're also like a Southern California native, right? So I wonder what you're seeing or what you're, what you're feeling the LA that you've known, how, how it's going to change. Yeah. I mean, I think it's similar to what you were saying. It's, I think unlike Frank, it's, People from Southern California and the Bay Area are just much less, they're just not used to this kind of, they don't have to acknowledge what race they are necessarily. And this idea that, you know, all these young people are being shaped by this experience, like young Asian kids is really sad to me. I feel like, like, I didn't feel like I was super aware of my Indian identity as a kid and I didn't really have to be because it wasn't a big deal. And now that it feels like that's maybe that already changed a while ago or maybe I was living in a bubble. But it does feel like if you're seeing kids on the playground getting into fights about this, that's such a sort of sad reckoning yeah. that they're having to deal with. Do either of you remember your parents talking to you about race before? Uh, me, never, except out of the context of the stories that I would hear about what their experience was during World War Two. As Japanese Americans, uh, they were all in sent to in, internment camps. But even those stories came in really short, you know, installments over the years. When I was older, I, I heard a lot more. Um, so I was never like sat down and told this is what happened and this is what racism is. I don't even ever remember my parents talking about racism with me. I, I can't actually explain why that is. I don't know if it's something that was too painful for them to to bring up or or even if it would be something that they would want to talk about today. What about you, Samia? I don't have any memories of my parents telling me anything about race. I'm trying to think back. I can't remember any conversations like that. And my parents, you know, they're pretty open in general. This It's kind of surprising being asked that question and not having anything pop to mind. Oddly, I remember I studied abroad in London when I was in college, and I remember my dad telling me that he thought I could experience racism that I'd never experienced before in London, but not never in the U.S. I think, like, for my parents, the U.S. seemed like... It just, at least at that point, when I was a kid, it wasn't a place that they were going to say bad things about like it would they were going to you know my dad always talked about he immigrated first to LA and always talked about how it felt like a melting pot and you know it was this very special place in the US where he didn't feel like that much of an outsider like my parents you know we grew up in Tennessee so race would always come up with parents at work neighbors or just kind of like about town and and mostly what they would say to me is stop being so angry about it <laughs> you know like because I would get really really angry 
So I never got any like really sort of helpful advice besides like, don't let it bother you. You know, now is a time where, where if you are the parent of a, of a child, like you, you, you are starting to think about how to have um, those conversations. Finally, uh, Samia, since we've got you here and you're probably one of the most informed people I know, what tips can you give us for, for staying healthy and safe? Yeah, I'm sure everyone's heard them before, but, you know, washing your hands is really important. They're, you know, found that the virus can live on surfaces. And so washing your hands, using hand sanitizer, if you don't have access to water and keeping your distance from people. I mean, there's the research is always changing about whether people who are asymptomatic can pass it on, how far the virus can sort of fly from person to person when someone coughs and sneezes. But keeping, you know, they say six feet, if you're in a crowded place, just don't get super close up to people. Um, and that's for the sort of avoiding the coronavirus. But in, you know, getting good sleep, like going off Twitter and actually letting your mind rest, do all the normal things that keep you healthy, you know, just regular health advice, drinking less, eating vegetables, all those things will keep your immune system strong. I love that recommendation. It's like avoid social media if you can for your health. Which was true before this. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's easier yeah, said no, than done. Really. But yeah. <laughs> Everyone out there can also and should also follow along with Samia's coverage on the LA Times, which honestly looks like it's like a daily basis right now. You seem so busy and I'm, I'm very grateful for it myself. We also have some free daily content that's not behind a paywall on, on the LA Times. Uh, we have the coronavirus newsletter and some updates. So that's worth checking out if you want to keep up on the latest we know you have to head out into the field to do more of your reporting but we do have this regular segment i i don't know i'm really curious to know if you have something we call a bad asian confession it's something that we do with all of our guests this is a segment where we all share a moment or a feeling where we felt like a bad asian and in this context, I've been trying to think of one specific to this conversation. Um, but that's something we wanted to invite you to do with us as well, Samia. I don't have one that's specific to coronavirus, but I do have, I have yeah, a lot, actually. Please. The one that affects me in my like life the most is that I don't speak any Indian languages. Uh, I used to speak my mother tongue when I was a kid and then when I was a, like a baby, like there's all these videos of me as a one year old, two year old speaking English and my mother tongue, uh, which is called Kannada, interchangeably. And then my parents put me in daycare and the people who worked at the daycare couldn't understand it. And so I unlearned it as a survival mechanism and then never learned it again. So I just don't speak it. And I can understand it, though, but I somehow I have like a block in my brain. I can't get the words out. That's actually similar to my parents who both understood some Japanese but hadn't spoken it or, you know, since they were kids. So, like, they mostly grew up not knowing it. And now I don't know any. So I, I, I feel that bad Asian confession very intently. Yeah, so many bad Asian confessions are about not being able to speak the language. And what other, like... <laughs> person in the United States has to be like bilingual to feel like a full person, you know, like, 
and and then there's all this like history, right? Of Ugh. people used to be scared of being seen as foreign and speaking your your foreign language was something that a lot of Asian American parents, you know, uh, Chinese parents, you know, Indian parents too, I guess, have have encouraged their their children to emphasize their Americanness by not speaking the language, you know, and so. So some of us like never had a chance to learn it. Instead, had you know pressures forcing us to forget it. Why is there the expectation that we all <laughs> have to speak it anyway? Um, thank you so much for sharing that, Salmia. I really appreciate it. Frank, did you have one for this episode? Oh man, I have one actually. Like just going off of Salmia's, I will add to that. It's something I've I've mentioned before as a, a bad Asian confession that I can't speak Japanese or I don't speak Japanese. I shouldn't say can't, huh? Because there's always like I could. I could learn. I could try to learn. So I'm gonna I'm gonna reserve that possibility for myself in the future and say just currently I don't speak Japanese. It's something I, I would like to learn. But especially during this time in the in the the time of coronavirus, I have been thinking about that a lot more because I have one grandparent remaining who's still with us and in her very advanced age which is wonderful it's been so great to have her with us so long um she's a hundred and one years old wow in her advanced age she kind of like mostly speaks in a combination now of Japanese and English she was actually born in California herself and my whole life she spoke English with us because I didn't know Japanese but the older she got, you know, her faculties kind of declined. And so now her default is Japanese, which is so interesting and um, also makes it so much harder to talk to her because I don't speak it. And so I've been feeling that widening gap more and more in recent years. But especially now, it is something that kind of is haunting me more and more. No, I, I have the same thing going on with my grandma. Oh, really? Yeah, she's Taiwanese, and, and so she speaks the um, sort of indigenous Taiwanese language. We call it Taiyi, but it's also like Hakka. I don't speak it, you know. We've never been able to communicate. <laughs> and I feel bad about that. I've had time to learn, you know. I'm, I'm 32 years old, and now my grandma is kind of like, you know, nearing the end of her life and, and we've still never been able to like exchange some words. I mean, we've said things like the food is ready and I'm full, you know, but those are the only sort of words that I know. And I guess I just I wish I could have known her, you know, and, and I wish I had tried to learn, you know. But uh, I mean, I do speak Mandarin, you know, and, and it doesn't make me a bad Asian, you know, it just it just means that, yeah, I have stuff I want to do. I have a feeling that in the next you know, many months we're going to see that a lot of more people are feeling very similar uh, feelings yeah. to, to, the, to all of this, um, especially as coronavirus affects older people at a, a, such a greater rate. I think it's going to really sink in, in in certain ways for those of us who can't currently communicate so so freely with our elders. So I hope that wasn't too much of a downer. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thank Zalmia. you. Thank I you, Zalmia. really appreciate you coming on. And Godspeed in all of your reporting. Take care of yourself. Good luck. Thank you. Of course. Be safe out there also. I will. I mean, most of my reporting now in these quarantine days is in my apartment anyway. So 
But I am getting a bag of gear delivered with, um, like, I don't know, masks or something. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, oh, I don't wow. want I don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thanks for having me on. Enjoy. If you have a bad Asian confession you'd like to share with us, or if you have questions about issues that we've been covering in this podcast, call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. And that's it for this special bonus episode of our podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato, and by Frank Xiong. Our senior producers are Rena Palta and Lina Anwar. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. And our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. We'll be back on Tuesday with episode three. It's our conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Viet Thanh Nguyen. If you like Asian enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Camila Victoriano and Clint Schaff. All right, guys, stay safe. Goodbye. Wash your hands. Stay distant socially, but not emotionally. And remember, please, please be good to each other. 